Well, the first thing I think he would do would be to stand up and tell the truth. I mean, he had a great expression that was uh, just tell the truth and watch them scatter. So the further away the problem is, uh, the easier it is to postpone action on it. And that's essentially what we're doing. Be real, because people in New Hampshire are really cool. I'd say get in the game. This is a problem facing your generation. You have to have a voice in the decision. Welcome to Facing the Future, brought to you by the Concord Coalition on WKXL, New Hampshire's talk radio station. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Each week, we take a nonpartisan dive into topics related to the federal budget, the economy, and how it all affects our nation's future. This week, we're going to look back at an eventful 2023 for the budget and economic policy and look at uh, what it means for the policy debates ahead for 2024. Our discussion features an all-star panel of Concord Coalition experts. I kind of chuckle because it's like my sister is my favorite sister. She's my only sister. This is an all-star panel. It is in the entire Concord Coalition staff, as a matter of fact. But it includes our policy director, Tori Gorman, who you're well familiar with, our chief economist, Steve Robinson, also a regular on this show, but... This week, we also feature uh, National Field Director Phil Smith, Deputy Director uh, Chris Culligan, and Media and Policy Intern Kyle Duffy, who I'm happy to say, and he's probably happy too, just graduated from American University in Washington. Certainly, uh, this has been an eventful year. Uh, Most of it uh, was spent the beginning of the year fighting about the debt limit. And that really took up about the first six months of the year. And then, uh, and I I am not a big fan of the debt limit. We talked about it quite a bit, had several programs focused on the the debt limit. They finally got that, they avoided a uh, government uh, default and came up with a bill in May called the Fiscal Responsibility Act of 2023. It's one of those grandiose name bills, you know, there wasn't, I mean, basically what it did was avoided a default, you know, and you can call that responsible, I suppose, because of the, the alternative would be even worse. But they didn't really accomplish much aside from avoiding a default. There were caps put in place for discretionary spending, that's appropriations, for two years, fiscal year 24 and 25. That was a good thing. They did not do anything with mandatory spending of revenues. In fact, uh, I believe in CBO scoring, the mandatory spending actually went up by a little bit. And, uh, and so that part of it actually contributed to the, uh, to the deficit. So anyway, uh, they got it done. And uh, then they immediately began fighting about, uh, about the terms of it. Uh, they were supposed to be able to smoothly pass the appropriations bills by the end of the year, September 30th, end of the fiscal year. That didn't happen. They managed to avoid a shutdown uh, by kicking the can down the road to November 30th. Again, they couldn't reach an agreement, so they kicked the can all the way into the next year, into 2024. And they gave us two shutdown dates that we're now looking at for 2024, which is one of them is January 19th for some programs, and the rest of it is February 2nd for a lot of the programs. And that is appropriate because it's Groundhog Day, and I can't think of a better day to be worried about a government shutdown than February 2nd. But that's all uh, where we're leading into 
next year. So basically, when I look back on 2023, it's avoiding shutdowns and defaults. And frankly, that's that's not a great track record for a fiscal year, even though we didn't have a default and we didn't have uh, a shutdown, but uh, we accomplished virtually nothing. If, if, if avoiding a disaster is your idea of success, then we had a successful year. Uh, but that was about it. So there's a lot of leftover business in 2024, along with a lot of new business, because we have to start thinking about uh, the 2025 appropriations process coming up and a new presidential budget, and there'll be elections and, and all sorts of uh, other things to, to distract us. So I wanted to give each of our all-star panelists a chance to uh, reflect on, on something or talk about where we go in 24. I'm going to begin with Tori Gorman, Concord's mm-hmm. policy director. So, Tori, what are your thoughts about 2023? And that is in terms of the federal budget. You don't have to talk about what any in general, your personal life, you know, what about <laughs> the budget? <laughs> yeah, no, no. Um, I, I think the one thing that surprised me the most about 2023 uh, was how little got done, as you said, and and more to the point of that, that the realization that no one controls the House of Representatives. There is no one party in control of the House of Representatives. It's a bunch of a bunch of fra- factions that, when they combine with one another in certain ways, they can get legislation passed. But that even though the the Republicans have a majority, which means the Speaker can control what does and does not go to the floor. He doesn't have a lot of control over what does and does not get passed. It and and of course the result of that has been a year long of getting nothing done. And so that that's that's sort of the the the, the big surprise for me in in 2023. Uh, but in 2024, that leads to a bunch of you know sort of we're going to kick off 20 we're going to in 2024 we're going to kick off basically five or six years of major, major policy decisions that will need to be made. You know, some really tough choices are going to be have to have to be made starting in 2024. And it's just going to be multiple years of really, really tough changes. So that's that's sort of the the surprise for me in 2023 and and what I'm looking at in 2024. I want to get back to some of those tough choices. And because it, it really is quite a, a daunting task that we're going to face, not just in 2024, but 2025. Whoever happens to be elected president in 2024 is going to really have some difficult choices to make in 2025. Mm-hmm. And we should get back and, and talk about that. Um, next, I want to turn to Steve Robinson. It's been... Um, an interesting year on the economy. I don't know if that's what you wanted to talk about, but you are the chief economist. So I made that assumption. But talk about anything you want. But uh, what what stood out for you? Well, well I guess that you know the, the the big headline for me has been watching watching the Fed and the financial markets and the uh, the various government agencies that report on uh, the the economy and inflation. Um, you know the, the the big news, of course. Financial markets are quite convinced that the Fed is, you know, ready to start cutting interest rates next year. You know, my my suspicion is that the uh, financial markets are, are going to be wrong, um, and I say that for a couple of reasons. 
uh, you know, the latest headline inflation numbers that 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 uh, were released. The Fed, the Fed, the Fed's preferred measure of inflation, the personal consumption expenditure index. You know that that's now down to two point six percent. So you might think, well, we're well on our way compared to seven percent last summer. We're well on our way of getting to the Fed's target of two percent. But there's there's also several other measures of inflation I think that are that are important. That, you know what's called the core measure of inflation, uh, which excludes food and energy, which is very very volatile. Uh, the core measure is still at three point two percent. But but more importantly. Uh, if you look at housing, it's still at 6%. And if you look at hourly wages, they're roughly 4%. And so, you know, if you go back before the pandemic, uh, wages were running on average about 3% a year. And that's consistent with 2% inflation and 1% productivity growth. But if wages are growing at 4%, you know, unless you're prepared to argue that uh, productivity has doubled from 1% to 2%, what that really implies is that in the in terms of the wage structure, you've got about a 3% inflation and a 1% productivity. Now, you know, that may or may not persist, but wages and housing are core elements of the service side of the economy. And, you know, goods inflation went from pre-pandemic about 1% up to 10%. Now they're down to zero. Services went from two to six, and now they're down at around four. So, you know, you can see that 4% is consistent with wages and housing. And so, you know, my, my so I guess sort of my bottom line inflation prediction is that, you know, the, the Fed has not yet tamed inflation. They're not yet at their target. You know, you know their claim is, well, we're going to hit our target in another year or two. But I mean, you know, historically, you don't see these long, gradual, sloping, you know, trends getting from the current level to the you know, projected or, or expected level, you see a lot of volatility up and down. And, you know, I think the housing market is still, you know, we're seeing housing prices continue to rise. Wages are still high. So I think that, you know, the, the core elements that are driving inflation are still there. And so the notion of the Fed cutting interest rates, certainly early in the year, and, and I would suggest even later in the year, you know, I still think that's a little bit optimistic. But you know, my crystal ball could be cloudy, could be cracked. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> well, anyway. we'll get we'll we'll we'll, we'll see about that. Uh, and at, at this point, we're going to take our first break. You're listening to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby, and I'm here with an all-star Concord Coalition cast of uh, experts to talk about fiscal 23 and what to expect for fiscal 24. We'll be right back after these short messages. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby, and I'm here with a bunch of Concord Coalition policy experts, Tori Gorman, uh, Steve Robinson, Phil Smith, our field director, Chris Culligan, our uh, deputy director, and uh, Kyle Duffy, our media and policy intern. And we're discussing what was important about 2023 and what's uh, important about the upcoming year, 2024. So let me turn now to uh, Phil Smith, our national field director. And uh, what stood out for you in 2023? And what do you think is important coming up next year? 
Well, thank you, Bob. Uh, as Concord continued our mission to educate Americans across the country, uh, you know, it's hard for just the six of us to educate hundreds of millions of people. So we depend on a network of volunteers. Our fiscal lookouts were active this year across the country in different states. And there are different types of Americans and subsets of Americans, you know, that we try to educate. Young people are obviously a huge target for us because these but these budget issues disproportionately affect young people. So we were on lots of college campuses this year. And obviously, we can't be in all 50 states at one time. So we have to target certain states. And the way that the, the map works out, uh, some voters in some states, some residents of some states have a disproportionate power uh, at the ballot box, right? So when we go to states like Iowa or New Hampshire or the swingiest of swing states, my home state of Georgia, uh, you know, we spend a lot of time trying to educate people. And, and um, you know, there are so many myths about the federal budget. So we spend a lot of time uh, battling those those myths. Uh, but in, a, in addition to young people and in targeted states like that, uh, we also tried to educate members of Congress and their staff. So we spent some time on Capitol Hill this year. And to Tory's point, it was a very interesting year on Capitol Hill. Um, I headed up for the swearing ins back in January or what I thought was going to be swearing in. And when I was looking back on the calendar, this might be the first time we've ever had a year in review when I can say we had three speakers in one year, because when I went up there, Speaker Pelosi was a speaker. She then eventually turned the gavel over to another Californian, Kevin McCarthy, although it took several days and I never saw those House members sworn in because I left before they finally got sworn in. Uh, and then who would have thought that later on in the year, we'd have a speaker from the great state of Louisiana. <laughs> and so it has just been a very, very interesting year for the House of Representatives. But we did eventually find uh, four House members uh, who received the Concord Coalition's uh, highest honor, the Economic Patriot Award. So there, there were some good things happening in Congress. It's, you have to dig kind of hard to find uh, because obviously there's lots of inaction, which frustrates a lot of our volunteers and Concord Coalition supporters across the country. Um, but it was it was a very interesting year, particularly uh, in in Congress. On the uh, going back to young people on college campuses, uh, we spent a good bit of time on Kyle's campus at American University. We spent a lot of time at the University of Iowa this year, and of course, uh, again in Georgia, lots of places. Uh, and also, uh, obviously, New England, which is the birthplace of the Concord Coalition. We spend a lot of time up there in campuses uh, in New Hampshire. Uh, we're, we're obviously a target. These places are targets for us next year as well. Um, we're also uh, already on the calendar. We're going to be at the Maxwell School at Syracuse University. We're going to be down at Seminole State uh, in Florida this year. And uh, the University of Georgia will be hosting us in February. So lots of events already on the calendar and, uh, and more to come. So looking forward to it. That's good. I, I would just uh, point out relative to one of your points there that we did an event at, uh, I wasn't there, but I mean, there were a lot of a lot of Concord people were uh, at the, the Boys State New Hampshire convention uh, earlier this year. And we did one of the principles and priorities budget exercises for them. Kyle was there. I think, were you there, Phil, as well for that? Not only was I there, but I, this is a great segue for Kyle because I got to see Kyle in action and he just gave a command performance from the podium uh, when we did that, that, that exercise. Well, we'll, we'll, we'll uh, hang on that one till, till Kyle's uh, turn here. But I, what I was going to say is that that actually, because we recorded parts of that, uh, did interviews with some of the students and, and did a Facing the Future 
episode based on on that. And it was one of the highest, um, I don't want to say rated because we don't really do ratings. But I mean, it was one of the most listened to uh, in terms of the downloads on the podcast that, that we had for the whole year. Very, I mean, like one of the top two or three. So um, that's good because people were listening to it. Um, okay, so let me turn to Chris Culligan, Deputy Director. Chris, what stood out yeah. for you? Well, a little bit piggybacking on uh, what Phil just mentioned, but also going back to to your introduction, Bob, and to Tori's point, um, it did seem like it was very, very hard to find something that was positive that came out of action up on Capitol Hill. But um, one thing that I think gave me some glimmer of hope uh, was the momentum behind the idea for the fiscal commission. It's commissions, of course, are, are always tricky. There's always going to be opposition. There's always going to be the concern that they don't do anything and they point to past commissions. And we all know the that those uh, commissions in Washington often just become, you know, papers that sit on shelves. And uh, we all understand that. But there did seem to be some sense that there are at least rumblings that people do understand what's going on on the fiscal side, that we're on an unsustainable path. We've been on that. And that the consequences of that, the uh, potential just climactic challenges uh, coming uh, are getting closer. And so I think there may possibly be something we can talk about this in the when we talk about what will happen in the future. But I think there may be some hope that this kind of a commission, which would act much like the base realignment commission, where um, the idea of a, a binding vote or a, at least or a not, I guess, a non-binding vote, but an up or down vote um, in the uh, Congress could come out of this. And um, so I want to give some sense of, you know, not a rosy scenario, but but a, just a, a little glimmer, maybe a, just a, a small, small ray of hope that there is something out there um, that we can look forward to and build on. And as Phil mentioned, we had uh, four uh, of uh, the, the four economic patriots that we honored this year, representatives Golden, Bacon, Peters, and Heizenga are four of the serious folks out there that are actually pushing fiscal issues. And these four uh, are definitely leaders in that area. They're part of things like the Bipartisan Fiscal Forum, certainly our, our friends at the Blue Dogs. So it's it's a ray of hope. And adding to that, the, uh, the economic patriots from two years ago, Senators Manchin and Romney, who are high, very high profile now on this idea of a commission. So I want to say that there is a uh, there is a possibility of something. It's not all it does not all dysfunction all the time. Uh, there may be some some actual opportunities here. So that's what I want to kind of highlight from uh, from 23, because there's as was pointed out earlier, there weren't a whole lot of highlights. 
Okay, and now to uh, round out the Concord uh, staff uh, observations here, uh, I'll turn to uh, Kyle Duffy. Kyle, uh, aside from graduating this year, what stood out to you about the fiscal outlook uh, and what uh, may be coming down the road? Thank you. Yeah, I appreciate it. I think one of the big headlines from this year that was really notable is how old Congress is. And I think it ties really well into what Bob and Tori said earlier about how unproductive Congress has been, not just on the debt and deficit front, but we're talking historically unproductive. They're on track to be the least productive Congress in the last 30 years. So it's really important to consider that when you're thinking about if we want to actually get things done and make tough choices, um, we need to think about who is making these decisions. I think it was either Chris or Phil that mentioned you know, the disproportionate effect that the debt and deficit issues are going to have on my generation and younger people in general. Uh, we need those people in the room making decisions. Um, as Chris mentioned, the Fiscal Commission is being spearheaded by those younger individuals um, in Congress, at least relatively. And those are the people who are going to make the tough choices and in actually engage with the dialogue that might make real change, whether it be on a fiscal commission or otherwise. Because if you're in you know, my position or even people older than me in our position as younger people, the outlook over the next 60 years, not only for the debt and deficit, but you know, for climate change, global politics, the trends don't look great. So having these younger people in the room to help make really important decisions about where our country's trajectory is going is going to allow us to make tough choices that maybe an older Congress isn't willing to make or doesn't feel the urgency to make because of their position. You know, uh, to pick up on that, I just uh, finished teaching a class with Chase Hageman at the UNH Franklin Pierce School of Law, but uh, one of the, it was on U U.S. the future of U.S. fiscal policy, and uh, you know all the students really took took the subject seriously. There wasn't any real pushback about whether you know this was something that was going to affect their generation, and uh, you know there was a wide variety of, of opinions about what to do on it. I mean that was the thing is you you could get very conservative people, very liberal. Uh, people that had very different policy prescriptions, but I think everybody got kind of got the point that um, that that there were some you know if if no choices are made then the fiscal outlook looks very bleak. I mean, do you find that uh, people are aware of this issue? I mean, you are obviously, but I mean, do, 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 do people think of it in these terms, in like in generational terms? Think about the debt. I think people do, but it's. For a lot of my generation, it doesn't feel as urgent compared to a lot of other things going on. Um, so I think it takes the important work of people like Phil going out in the field and talking about it um, to kind of put it on on everyone's radar and understand that, you know, it might be more serious than they think. And it should be something worth considering as we kind of come into our age as people who become policymakers and policy analysts and people who are making the decisions. Well, we're going to have to take our second break right now. You're listening to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby, and I'm here with the Concord Coalition staff doing a year-end review and uh, looking ahead. We'll be right back after these short messages. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby, and I'm here with a all-star panel of Concord Coalition policy people talking about 
what happened in 2023 on the budget and economic front and what we can expect on 2020, in 2024. Tori, you had uh, one more observation you wanted to make about why people are annoyed. Yeah, I, I think one of the most interesting dynamics about 2023, especially as we look to 2024 and election year, is how unhappy people are with the state of the U.S. economy. When you look at you know your your basic measures of you know growth and and inflation and and labor market health, you know we're doing fine. You know the economy's humming along, growth wise, we're growing at a at a really good clip. Um, wage, wages are rising. You know inflation is moderating. The unemployment rate is really low. But people are poll after poll is showing that people, voters especially, are very, very unhappy with Joe Biden's stewardship of the economy. And it, you know, it makes me think back to 1992 when James Carville first popped on the scene as a Clinton strategist when President Clinton was running for election the first time. You know, they had this this sign on every. Uh, campaign office workers door just to remind them what the message was. It's the economy, stupid. It's the economy, stupid. Well, I think this year we need to refine that message and Biden needs to refine that message as he heads into a re-election campaign in 2024. It's the groceries, stupid. You know, it's not so much, you know, the overarching economy. It's the groceries and the price of groceries, stupid. And I think until he gets the price of groceries under control, um, he's going to have a problem at the ballot box. Well, I think, yeah, I think because people notice that every day. And the thing is that even if inflation is moderating, it's still going up and it's still a lot higher. Prices are still a lot higher than they were just a couple of years ago, because the prices went up very, very fast. And so I, you know, I think everybody has noticed that if they go to the grocery store with a set amount of money, it doesn't buy anywhere near as, as much. And unlike gas prices, which moderate up and I was stunned the other day, I filled up my, uh, my car and I was stunned at actually how low, I mean, I had to double, like, you know, do a double take on the, price that that's wow that's really a lot cheaper on gas prices than i had seen in in a long time so that but that's not true yeah you don't see the grocery prices actually coming down <laughs> so i think uh that that certainly does stick with uh and they're they're very they're, they're not a lot of substitutes right for groceries <laughs> i mean you gotta eat right i mean if, if gas prices are high then maybe you don't take that summer trip or maybe you you don't drive as much maybe you do a little bit more walking maybe you consider cycling to work whatever it is you know but there are ways around to you know how to how to control your your gas bill budget uh, you know, but when it comes to food, you got to put food on the table for your family. You know, it's 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 not something you can. Yeah, maybe there are some some uh, substitutions that you can make. Uh, you know, if if orange juice is really expensive, then, you know, maybe water. I don't know. But, you know, but you, you got to put food on the table. You got to feed your family. Um, and that's so. Yeah, I, I really think it's 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 no longer you know, the slogan is no longer it's the economy, stupid. The slogan is it's the grocery, stupid. Steve, uh, let me pick up from there and just uh, I, I think I've got a clue based on what you said earlier. But the big question that people are asking is, is the Fed going to uh, stick their soft landing? Because <laughs> everybody has, seems to say that they're on track. Um, the so-called soft landing is where you can get inflation down without causing a recession or a major disruption in the workforce. Uh, all of these signs seem to be positive 
at this point. But uh, I mean, what do you think? Are we going to have a soft landing in 2024? Yeah, I think it, it's it's really hard to say. I mean, the, the markets are certainly are predicting it. I mean, you know, they assume that uh, inflation's coming down, interest rates are coming down, unemployment is still low. You know, all of those signs indicate uh, indicate a soft landing. But you know, it would be historically unprecedented for that to occur. I mean, I, I have repeatedly on this show uh, and asked other guests about the this notion of the inverted yield curve that, you know, if you look at the relationship between short-term rates, long-term rates being interest rates and inflation and unemployment, there's generally a very strong correlation that in order to get inflation down, you have to keep long-term interest rates up and unemployment has to rise. And for whatever strange and unusual reasons in in the post-pandemic economy, uh, long-term rates are coming down. I mean, the 10-year interest rate uh, had gone up to 5% a month or so ago, and now it's, you know, down down below 4% again. Uh, so, the, you know, the long-term interest rate indicator, and of course, unemployment is, is below 4% as well. And, you know, neither of those indicators historically have been consistent with getting inflation under control. You know, it, it's... Like I say, I, I keep hesitating to you know point to the past and say, you know, if the past is any indicator of of the future, we're either going to not contain inflation or we're going to not have a soft landing. But, you know, again, you know, the, look at the Fed's balance sheet, look at the post-pandemic economy. There just are too many perhaps new, you know, th- you know, this time things may really be different. I mean, we hear that all the time. Every t- every time something happens, oh well, this time is different, and right. usually it's not. But maybe this time it really will be. And yeah, I'm really I'm really struck between the difference between market expectations and what the Fed has signaled at their last meeting. That you know, the Fed is. I mean, they did their big pivot to uh, you know talking about you know interest rate reductions not just holding, but, uh, you know, markets are thinking pricing in twice as many rate reductions uh, over the next uh, 12 months as, as the Fed was signaling. Uh, and I, I don't uh, I, I don't know what accounts for such enthusiasm, aside from wishful thinking. It, uh, well, wishful <laughs> thinking is a powerful force in the financial markets. Yeah. Well, uh, you know, we're going to find out. Um well, thinking about wishful thinking, Phil, um, you mentioned uh, you mentioned myths, and I want to kind of segue into one of the things that we get all the time, which are some things that people are just very, very sure about uh, regarding the federal budget that um, that that aren't quite true, <laughs> maybe very untrue, uh, but they thoroughly believe them, and they got that information from somewhere. So do you have a uh, a favorite uh, myth that, that you hear about all the time in, in doing public events? Absolutely. And I've seen it over the years, and I've seen it over great geographic stretches. It doesn't matter if I'm in the Pacific Northwest or the South or up in New England or out West. Everywhere I go, for some reason, and I would love to find out the source of this myth, uh, a huge number of Americans and there have been polls that indicate this too, think that we spend upwards of 25% of our budget on foreign aid. 
And I think they're talking about that even more now because obviously we are increasing our foreign aid budget right now with everything we're doing uh, on behalf of Israel and on behalf of Ukraine. But it's still nowhere near 25 percent of the budget. Right. And so people think that, oh, if you just get rid of that foreign aid, you know, the Concord Coalition could solve all of those problems that you're talking about. And in most normal years, of course, we're talking about, you know, one percent of the budget when you talk about foreign aid. So that's got to be the biggest one. Um, there's lots of other ones out there. And, we're, you know, we've got a little project at the Concord Coalition right now that we're working on where we we talk about these myths. Another one is that, you know, if we could just grow our way out <clears throat> out of the problem. And obviously, fiscally responsible economic growth is a fantastic goal. Uh, but you can't just say we're going to, you know, grow ourselves out of this and not uh, not look at the hard choices. In fact, <clears throat> it'd be very interesting to see just how much economic growth you would have to have, you know, if you wanted to rely on that. And my hunch is it's a whole lot. You know, it's obviously impossible, maybe even double digit economic growth each year for several years. Who, who knows what that astronomical uh, figure would be? Uh, we hear lots of myths about, you know, if we would just tax all the millionaires, uh, we could fix these problems. The problem is there's not enough millionaires for one thing, uh, you know, and and so we we uh, we hear lots of things out there. A, the, by the way, there's a lot more millionaires now than there used to be. It's 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 really like billionaires. That's right. That's right. <laughs> that's a, a million dollars isn't what it used to be. That's right. Yeah, that's um, right. Uh, we're going to have to take our uh, final break here. You're listening to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. And I'm talking about with the entire Concord staff today about the budget uh, outlook for 2024 and looking back at 2023. We'll be right back after these short messages. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby, and I'm talking with the Concord Coalition staff today about the uh, uh, challenges ahead in uh, fiscal year 2024. Um, you know, Tori, you had mentioned back at the beginning of the show that whoever is uh, elected president is going to have to deal with a lot of pressing deadlines. Uh, could you go through a couple of those and then maybe we could dig into some of them? Sure. Uh, obviously, the, the the first you know major deadline for the new president is going to be the expiration of the 2017 tax cuts uh, at the end of 2025. Already, presidential candidates from both parties are falling all over themselves to promise to extend those. You know, if we were to make them permanent, the estimate is that it would cost about 3.4 trillion dollars. I, if they want to, if they want to extend those policies, and I can understand the desire to extend those policies, you know, our debt has has reached a critical point now where we need to start talking about how to offset those costs. Um, beyond that, uh, you know, we've got very important federal trust funds that will exhaust their resources uh, in the coming decade. Um, first up is the Highway Trust Fund in 2028. You know, for the longest time now, we've just been shifting general revenues uh, into the highway trust fund rather than raising the gas tax or finding some other method of financing uh, road and bridge construction and rehabilitation. Um, we're at the point now where we really can't do that uh, any longer. We've gonna have to find a way to pay for these things. After that, 2031, we've got the Medicare Part A trust fund. Medicare Part A 
pays for your doctor, your, your hospital visits. Um, you know, that trust fund's going to go belly up. Uh, and we've got to fi- figure out a way to, to, to fix that. And then, of course, the, the biggie is 2033 when Social Security Trust Fund, the combined Social Security Trust Fund of, of the old age and survivors benefits, uh, but also the disability benefits. Um, that's going to exhaust its resources and only be able to pay, you know, 75, 78 percent uh, uh, on the dollar. The, the good news about all of this is that, hey, we know this problem. These problems are coming. It's not like that. It's a surprise the way, say, COVID was a surprise or the way the invasion of Ukraine was a surprise. We know these problems are coming. So we have ample opportunity to do something about them. And the good news also is that the sooner we tackle these problems, the less painful uh, the solutions have to be. Steve, they, they, uh, they had a hearing at the House Budget Committee not long ago focused on Social Security. And a, and a number of people said, well, there's no problem here. <laughs> well, just throw a little general revenue at it. What do you think? Well, yeah. So, you know, the, the the common refrain is that we shouldn't cut Social Security and Medicare benefits because the, the, the workers have already paid for their benefits because everybody knows that, you know, the first day you go to work, you know, you get your first paycheck and you look on there and you say, who's this FICA person and why are they taking my money? You know, FICA is the Federal Insurance Contribution Act, which is the payroll taxes that they they pull out of your paycheck every week or every month. But, you know, I mean, we know, as Tori just said, the trust funds are going broke. So interestingly, if if we've paid for these benefits, why are the trust funds going broke? And what, what people are confusing is the individual return. So from an individual level, yes, some workers put in money that covers their benefits. Other workers, you know, get more than they pay in. And it, it all depends. I mean, it's Social Security is an insurance program. Medicare is an insurance program. So just like when you buy auto insurance or homeowner's insurance, you know, some people never have a wreck. Some people's house never burns down. But for those who do have a wreck and whose house does burn down, the insurance is a pool and it covers the cost of everybody. And we know that all the money that's gone into Social Security and all the money that's come out, we've recorded that. We've tracked that. That's in the trust fund. And the reason the trust fund is going broke is because we will have spent all of the past surpluses that we've collected previously on benefits going forward. And so by definition, from an insurance perspective, Social Security is going broke because we haven't paid for the benefits. Collectively as a country, as a society, as each generation, you know, over time we've paid in and we've taken out and we're promising to take out more than we've put in. And the argument that we can't cut the benefits because we've paid for them is, is obviously, you know, is obviously wrong. Yeah, uh, that that is. We get closer and closer to those uh, trust fund exhaustion deadlines. They are action forcing events, so to speak. And maybe in in addition to being action forcing events, there'll be I don't know wake up event calls or something something for people to you know think about how the program is financed and you know what the serious reforms are. I wanted to look to a, a little bit uh, longer term budget issue. I find increasingly, particularly with younger people, the subject of climate change comes up and its impact on the budget and the economy. It certainly was not an issue that people thought about uh, several years ago, uh, certainly even when the Concord Coalition became, uh, uh, you know, came into being in the early 90s. People did worry about environmental concerns. Paul Songus was very much worried about uh, the environment, even during his presidential campaign. But people didn't relate it necessarily to the budget and the economy. 
it was, you know, it was it was an environmental issue. And I thought that it was a case that there was more attention to the fiscal and economic consequences. But that was really driven home uh, for me at this class uh, that I just taught at UNH uh, Law on um, future fiscal policy. Many of the students not only asked about it, but they put uh, climate change proposals into their recommendations for addressing the the fiscal future. I wanted to ask um, Kyle if is that something that that people um, the younger generation. I know you can't speak for all younger people, but can can worry about. Uh, but we're going to ask you to anyway. <laughs> yeah, but, uh, but I mean. In thinking about, you know, the long term, people always say about fiscal policy, oh, it's going to happen way off in the long term. So why do you worry about it? But people are worried about what's happening in the in the long term on climate change because they realize that what we're doing now impacts the future. So I, I just wonder if uh, if you find some concern about climate change and its economic and fiscal impacts. Yeah, this is not the first time and I'm sure it won't be the last time that I'll talk about climate change on the show. Um, but I think the important thing is that these two issues can be really intertwined. Um, we've talked about a lot of really daunting challenges on this episode, but I think it's important to know that, you know, you can bring solutions together that help mitigate a lot of long-term problems. When you're talking about climate change and natural disasters, if you put in the investment now to mitigate those effects and try and reverse the effects of climate change, you are saving money in the long term. You're saving disaster relief money. You're saving reconstruction money. You're saving insurance money. You're saving so many things that you know we won't have to spend in the future and therefore hopefully reducing deficit and debt spending and you know some of these environmentally friendly projects can also generate revenue um, in, in some areas so i think it's a really unique way to intertwine these two long-term issues that people often have a hard time you know grappling with or putting together so if we can bring you know the climate change camp and the fiscal responsibility camp together i think there's can be really impactful long-term solutions that might actually help both um, issues. Let me ask you this: um, as a as a recent college graduate, I, I can I can attest to the fact that when I graduated from American University some years ago, I frankly didn't worry about the economic future of the country. Um, I you know you worried about short term recessions because you're always worried about are you going to be able to get a job. And I had a bad habit of graduating into recessions many times, but um, but I really didn't have the kind of concern. I'm just wondering, um, do you have some concern? I mean, we talk about the awful things, <laughs> the, the deep challenges uh, that the country faces and the political dysfunction. And I'm just wondering, um, do, do you or others have, have some concern about, you know, whether your generation is going to be able to, to prosper as well as your parents or your grandparents did? I think I, I and I can only speak for myself and I have a unique perspective having been with the Concord Coalition for more than two years now. Um, I think there is concern, but I really don't think it's it's all that widespread. Um, we are worried about, you know, the day to day. What's next? I think that's the sense with a lot of people. I don't want to leave this on too much uh, of a doom and gloom note, um, but I think what is inspiring, despite our pretty constant you know, concerns about the short term, um, is that the long-term outlook is really good with the leaders that we are developing um, in younger generations. I think it's really inspiring to look at how people want to make real solutions happen and make effective change happen. 
um, despite maybe the presence of thinking about the long-term fiscal issues maybe isn't there yet. I think the leadership skills and the knowledge to deal with those problems is really in the pipeline. I certainly hope it is because what's uh, at the tail end of the pipeline is a, a bunch of aging baby boomers who won't let go. <laughs> um, I, I mean, you know, it's, um, it's, it's time to move on, my fellow baby boomers. Um, and hope that the political leadership can come from uh, a younger generation. Tori, I don't know if your generation is going to get just skipped right over. I don't know the the Gen Do you still Xers. Your peril, because we know how to get stuff done. <laughs> I know. Well, I've 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 always thought that to be the case. Well, I want to thank all of our Concord staff for uh, of whatever generation of uh, participating in this, today's discussion. You're listening to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby, and we'll be back uh, next week, and I should say we'll be back next year with another edition of Facing the Future.